Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pallain. I'm a designer, educator, and writer. My guest today is Ewan McIntosh, where we met, I think, about 13 years ago um, in Glasgow. He's the founder and the CEO of Notosh and author of the brilliantly titled book, How to Come Up with Great Ideas and Actually Make Them Happen. Ewan has had a long career working in education and industry. He's worked as a high school teacher and was later a national advisor on learning and technology futures for the Scottish government. In 2008, he took a different turn and joined Channel 4 as their digital commissioner. And fascinated by the strategies and tactics his creative colleagues used to create imaginative and truly engaging digital services for young people, he wondered if he could use these insights in an educational setting, which is how No Tosh came about. Ewan, welcome to Power of Ten. Thank you for the welcome. What a build-up. <laughs> well, you know, it's your career. Now, we did meet, I think it was 13 years ago, or might have been even longer, mid uh, sort of noughties, as we say, 2004, 2006, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and we were at uh, in Glasgow at the Lighthouse there, actually. So was that at the time when you were the advisor on learning and technology or our futures, or was that before? That's right. I'd just come out of the classroom and was, I remember the Lighthouse series of events. And I remember going along to, there were a couple, there was yourself, there was Pat Kane, who I knew better for 1980s songs that I I sang along to as a child. And what's interesting is that in those days, really so few people were publishing their thinking online that you could meet in a room. And I've kept in touch somehow, light touch informally with almost everyone who I met during those lighthouse sessions at the in Mitchell Lane in Glasgow. That's right. They were very nice sessions and it was nice to kind of really talk about, um, you know, where the future of learning was going. I had a kind of strange crossover with Pat Kane too, because my, my PhD was about play and playfulness and he wrote oh. this book called The Play Ethic. And then sort of Ken Robertson came along and, and kind of gazumped us all with his writing. Um, but you have that. been thinking and <laughs> thinking about learning and teaching and education for, for a very long time. I want to take you a little bit back because you, you've worked in, in high school, right? So you were teaching languages, weren't you, in high school? I was the world's worst German teacher. I was a very good French teacher. <laughs> I've got to speak to German to you later then. See how you go. <laughs> no, I preempted that knowing where you live. So no, please do <laughs> We do the whole. We're just going to do the whole podcast in German now, as a uh, for our German listeners. So, what I'm interested though is when you speak to anyone who's been a high school teacher, it's uh, an experience that seems to kind of leave a kind of very deep marks on them, positive and negative sometimes. But I'm really interested to know what you learnt being a teacher back then in high school, because you're really kind of right at the heart of well, teaching young people right at the beginning of the educational journey. A couple of schools that at the time were tough. Um, they were tough in lots of regards. They were truly comprehensive. So you had kids who were going off to Oxford and Cambridge and incredibly smart young people. And you had incredibly smart young people throwing it all away. You had all the drugs and alcohol abuse of their parents and sometimes of the teenagers themselves. Yeah, it, was, it marks you. It leaves some grooves. And like you say, some of these grooves actually, as you grew up, produce uh, good music and they they turn you into whoever you become but I was very young as a teacher and compared to most of the teachers I am lucky enough to work with today I spent relatively little time in the classroom I'd taught at universities in France had uh, come home as the profession really came into its own in Scotland the, the changes in the law changes in the professionalism of the job and 
taught for just a few years, really, in some tougher environments before being plucked out of that environment. But being when I was a classroom teacher, the number one thing for me was I have to get these kids engaged. None of them really wanted to learn French or German, for that matter. The starting point was pretty low in some ways that they didn't want to come in through the door, let alone uh, get involved in speaking French. So everything I did was around how to, first of all, help these young people feel that they had achieved something. And I think that a lot of talk about learning focuses on the E word, engagement, when actually helping people feel that they've achieved something quite early on is the key to then feeling that you've, you're engaged in it. And of course, most people, when they talk about foreign languages, what, what do most adults say? Oh, I, I can't speak anything. I'm terrible at languages. Mm-hmm. And they say the yeah. same thing about maths, actually, as well. And one of the reasons for that, I'm sure, is because they didn't really have positive experience, that sense of achievement really early on. And without that, you're on a hiding to nothing. Well, they say the same about design, I mean, uh, too, and, uh, and drawing and art and things. And I, I'm convinced that, you know, most people draw like 10-year-olds because that's when they last learnt or were taught to draw. And I, I had a woman in a workshop once in a, in, a, in a telco, actually it was, and I said, okay, now we're going to do some drawing because we're going to do some sort of storyboarding, so like a sort of design workshop and new ways of working. And she was quaking with fear at the idea of that I was going to make her draw. And then I have a kind of nice exercise where you everyone draws like kind of a storyboard based on stuff they're seeing very quickly on screen. And what's interesting about doing it really fast is that everyone's equally good or bad. You know, Even sort of illustrators and graphic designers are just as kind of bad as everyone else. And this kind of moment for her of, of sort of accomplishment there, she was almost in tears in the other direction for it. So I can, I can completely see that. So what are the sort of key insights you took from that and actually from your colleagues at Channel 4? that sort of fed into your work now? How have those sort of threaded together? I think from the classroom, that sense of um, you got to help people feel they've achieved something early on is so important. We often, when you're asked to go and help someone design anything, so we would maybe be looking one day at designing strategy or the next day it's designing a physical learning environment or the day after that it's designing helping teachers redesign units of work and projects that they want children to do all of these are big unwieldy things if you really want to make a difference and change the way it's been before and the traditional way of working is that you hire McKinsey or whoever you pay them a shed load of money and they come in and they do the work for you and it's very high quality work and it's beautifully done but you have zero ownership over it and you don't know how to reproduce it yourself and our whole mantra is that in my team today really comes from the classroom, which is if you know how to think differently, then you can change the way you choose to work. You don't have to be in the beck and call of the boss or the policy people or who, whatever someone told you you need to do it this way. Actually, you're your own boss and you're likely to have a, a high level of success in the end, a high level of achievement in the end, because you know how to think for yourself. So I think one lesson from the, the classroom that sticks with me for life and indelibly is that if people can't think differently for themselves early on then you're never going to achieve what they or you hoped you would achieve together and then i think at channel four i spent three years working in the government which two of them were fantastic because i was working with uh, teachers and, and learners and creating some real change in a relatively small geography the final year was disastrous in some ways because <laughs> the old guard got there. They spotted something they liked and they they got hold of it and tried to turn it into policy. And 
needless to say, it did work very well. But in that time, I was so fed up with the policy people in education that I thought, stuff this, I'm going to go and try something different. And it was serendipity that ended up landing me this position at Channel 4, for which I was wholly unqualified. But I was happy to take it on. And I made a decision. I chose to go into a completely different industry. And you know what? You see the same thing there, that there is a still attention, even in the most creative parts of these organisations, there's still a tension between doing what you're told and doing what others expect of you and actually thinking differently and, and rubbing up against it. And I had, everyone has a boss. I, I had a few <laughs> and there was no agreement between them on whether you should follow the line and do what you're told, particularly in the digital side, expectations around what good is in digital back in, when was it, 2008, were curious to say the least. Everyone had this vast confidence that they had the right answer when actually they didn't have a clue. Then you had people like me and one of my other bosses who I sat opposite three days a week in, in Glasgow and both of us were saying, none of these guys know what is happening. All you can do is play. And that means placing lots of small bets and having fun. And so I learned so much from that experience about placing bets, having fun, not getting bogged down in everything, having to work straight away but get bogged down and worry instead about finding quality people who can think for themselves and surprise you with their ideas. And so that was the part of that work I enjoyed the most, which is not dissimilar to what you enjoy most in the classroom, when a kid can think for themselves and surprise you with what they're able to pull off. But that's it's interesting that there's a, there's a tension there. But I mean, you've kind of mentioned it twice, which is this the structural part of what's going on. There's a structure that you're in. And then the emotional and the learning part and if I think back to so if I think in the sort of corporate environment and what you were just talking about or you know people are their own bosses they can think for themselves this is true but they're often then frustrated by the the structures they're in which often um, you know the bigger the company the more rules and processes and procedures and policies there are the more it actually can prevent people thinking for themselves and in, in fact creates that sort of learned helplessness and the same is kind of true in in school right when you're learning that, you know, there's lots of rules and stuff at school. Um, and there's a there's a kind of tension there that has to be, I don't know if it has to be resolved, but there's a tension there between, you know, I want you to learn and do something and, and learn to learn, uh, most of all, and kind of break the boundaries at the same time, you know, schools are heavily bound by process and procedure and achievement tables and all of that kind of stuff. You know? The tension's there in school, and it's, it's definitely in the workplace. I mean, I think I'm very lucky because... Most of the work I've done for the last 10 years, even the job at Channel 4 was an inbound. I didn't go looking for it. And inbounds are great because you've you've basically found the person who thinks a bit differently already. You don't have to work too hard to spot them in the in the corporation. Can you remember when you were at school as a, as a kid that it seemed that there were kids who did really well at school? They were seen as good students because they did everything they should do. They followed the rules. They did what they were told. And they actually... As a teacher, you recognise them sitting in the middle of the class. You look over them the whole time. And sitting in the middle of the class, metaphorically, I should add. And then there were the kids who were mavericks who, and at university, it was always the anthropology students, never seemed to do any work, but all got first. And I was like, how on earth does that happen? I work my backside off and I scrape a 2-1. These guys are getting firsts and they didn't do anything. And it's because they, they kind of, thought for themselves and they they did things in the way that worked for them they worked out what worked for them early on 
and they knew the game that they were trying to play. I think a lot of people in the corporate world are, haven't worked out yet their own game. They're busy trying to play someone else's game. Yeah, I was going to say that with with the know the game because I I wondered whether a, a sort of counter argument to that is you know that they so they work something out for themselves, which is they worked out how to get a first or they worked out how to get the grades. But that's different yeah. from working out how to learn. Totally different. And the thing is that these these anthropology students, I think they probably all ended up working for Goldman Sachs or something like that. You know, they there's a chameleon like quality to being able to think for yourself. So. Yes, short term, maybe they worked out the game to get better grades. Uh, Longer term, they probably are capable of working out how to play lots of other games as well. And the cynic in me maybe thinks, you know, there are times in life when you have to fit in, frankly. And there are times in life where you have to learn how you're going to stand out. And you actually need to be able to do both. And no way can you run a successful design firm if you don't know how to do both. Because not doing both means that you would accept every brief that you got given and do crap work as well as good work. But uh, being able to negotiate a brief, being able to take on a tender and still faithfully go about things the way you would go about them, that's a craft. I don't think I've learned how to do that one yet. No, that's Um, tough. I mean, it's the thing (laughs) we face all the time. (laughs) Yeah. We hate tenders for that very reason, because it's asking you to learn the game to pass the exam in some way and the worst thing is that if you think that you can play the game to pass the exam and then change the game once you get the gig you end up up the creek you have to follow that through and that's that's why as designers you have to make decisions i think sometimes about whether you do tenders or don't or whether you're going to produce work that you are proud to sign off with your name as uh, james victor puts it there's some work you sign your name on and there's other work you rub it off because it's, <laughs> it's paying the bills. And you have to be prepared to do both, I think, to be pragmatic. Yeah, that's true. So uh, I'm interested by your work now and No Tosh, obviously because it's, it's very similar to the, the work I do and and Jerry Scullin, who's he runs This Is HCD, that Power of Ten's part of, it, that he does too. There's a bit, though, where you say, which is how we learn is as important as what we learn. And just going back to the conversation about tenders, you know, when RFPs come out, it's all about the, you know, what. It's like, we need to learn this, we need to learn this, we want to have kind of, uh, you know, learn how to do X, Y, and Z. And then you kind of basically reply and say, well, you know, we can teach you X, Y, and Z. And I frequently have the conversation about the how part, and it quite often falls on deaf ears, or it's like they can maybe know it, but it's something because it's not part of the tender or whatever it is, it's not part of the... But would you say that how we learn is more important as what we learn? Or you said just as important. What's the kind of balance between those for you? I think in the customer's perception, so the person who's potentially thinking about doing something differently and wanting some help to do it, they're coming from a place where what you do, what you learn is important. And that's the reality. There's an overemphasis for someone, what we learn, and other people believe that that's exactly where the emphasis should be, that what you learn is important and to deny it is stupidity. I actually have very few opinions on on that. I think that when you work with international schools with an American bias, they learn so much about American history that I know nothing about, but they also know nothing about British history or Scottish history, which is incredibly important to me. What you choose to learn is contextually 
what's important to you. And I think when people know how to work that out for themselves, they will make good choices about what to learn or what to do. But I just said it, when they work out how to do that. So how you learn is just as important as what we learn. But the bias that people will always have is what it is you're learning. So we acknowledge that, but we also say, you know, you, you have to learn how to go about things. The way that we go about our work, for example, if someone comes to us saying, you know, we want to develop a new physical learning environment and we've got the architect lined up and it's going to be a learning environment for our youngest children, for three-year-olds to seven-year-olds. We'd like you to help facilitate something. We'd like you to do something. That's often how precise the brief is. We'd like you to do something to help make sure the space is good. And <laughs> they've, they've already decided what it is they're going to do. They're going to build a space. So they've, there's a heck of a lot of assumptions there. One assumption is we'll change the space, teaching will change. That's not true. There's plenty of research to show that's not true. It's not an if this, then that. You can change the space and teaching remains exactly the same. The same in workspaces, actually. You can move from cubicles to Starbucks-like environments and nothing will change in people's work environments. People will not magically start talking to each other. Uh, they'll just wear more headphones to avoid talking to their neighbour. They will get coffee and as quickly as they can from the coffee machine rather than lingering. So physical environment alone won't change how people work or how people learn. Something else needs to happen. So our question, of course, then is, well, how do you do what you do today? How do you teach? How do kids learn? And they've often not actually stopped to consider that and to take a snapshot. So observing how people learn today is just as important as looking at what it is they intend to do. It is maybe more important at the beginning. Eventually, it becomes less important because you've got to get the job done. You've got to create the change that you're looking for. And that involves lots of what's. It involves what you're going to do, what kind of space you're going to design, involves who is going to do it with all the biases they have. So if you get a, a school designer who's uh, prior experience is designing hospitals and offices, then I can guarantee what kind of school you'll end up with. Um, <laughs> like it doesn't matter what, what you do before. But if you are wanting to concentrate on, you know, we've realised that actually we everything we do is through play. Everything we do is through play when on a good day. And so we want to do more play and we want to look at the things where play is not the way of doing things and see if we can make it the way of doing things. So suddenly, are you building a school again? Are you Is that what you're going to do? Probably not. You're going to build something else. So then you need an architect and a designer who understands how to go about spaces that are playful. So straight away, you're thinking, actually, we don't need a school's architect. We need an architect who does playgrounds. We need an architect who does outdoor landscaping because being outdoors is going to be super important for us. We need an architect who understands restaurants, perhaps, because food and making food together is going to be an important part of what we do. So until you look at how you learn, you can't work out what it is you're going to do and what it is you're going to learn. So yes, it's probably more important at the beginning and then less important as you gain confidence in what you should be doing and why. So is that, I should wind back a little bit and kind of ask you a bit more about what you actually do now. So is that a large part of, of your work, those kind of um, learning environments and spaces? Yeah, it's a fair part of it. I think um, 40% is of our work is all in strategy and helping people work out where they want to head, how they want to get there, and later what they might do to do that. I think about 30% is on learning environment and what you do in that learning environment. So a mixture of uh, 
how people teach, how people learn, how they would do it differently if they could, uh, getting them to teach differently and to learn differently, and then helping design a better brief for the designer to take on and create the kind of space they're looking for. And then we've got about 30% of other stuff. So a lot of uh, change management, a lot of people trying to understand how to think differently through design thinking or through learning how to think differently about the problems or the challenges they're facing. So those are the three main platforms that we operate on. And this is all about kind of learning environments, basically, in, in one way or another. It always seems to touch on it. And interestingly, it touches on it when you're in a bad learning environment. If Even if you're doing a conference session, the lowest of the low. For us, we're not great fans of turning up at conferences because you never know the impact that your time, your hour or your day had. But they are some of the worst learning environments that you could ever end up in. And A hotel, a hotel conference oh, room. The beige hotel with the vomit carpet, the vomit proof <laughs> carpet. And the lighting that's so low, the most lighting in hotels that we go to sits at about 40 or 50 lux. And you need four or 500 to be able to concentrate for any length of time. So funnily enough, learning environment, working environment is hugely important, even if it's only tangential in some of the work that we're doing. And I think the, my favourite job over the years has been working with engineers at the, the German firm ThyssenKrupp because we didn't use their offices. We, we went to funky spaces like Beta House in Berlin and mm, yeah, um, yeah, we went up to the shipyards in Kiel, uh, the industrial shipyards. There's nothing like it because you're surrounded by machinery and oil and dirt. And it's the most uncorporate environment you could imagine. And I think that we got some of the best thinking out of those engineers that they've ever had. We certainly helped them generate more new products than they could ever have hoped for, I think. But the environment was so important. and it was. But it wasn't as important as the the structure that we built around their thinking. So how it all goes back to how we learn. We spent a significant amount of our preparation time just looking hour to hour to hour through the time that we spent with these engineers. How are they going to learn something new? We were not asking, how are they going to design a great product? We were asking, how are we going to open up their minds to see things differently? And it's harder, actually, when they're PhDs and MSCs <laughs> and, and really good at their jobs. It's actually easier when you've got a teenager who assumes they know nothing because you're able to see They're more open. Yeah, exactly. Much more open to new experiences. Yeah, I mean, I've had a similar experience teaching um, bachelor's and master's students. And, you know, by the time a design student's come into a master's and I'm trying to teach them something new, as it, as particularly when I was teaching that a few years ago and service design wasn't so really something people had studied in their undergraduate teaching bachelor's students was kind of easy because they were just like a sponge right just tell me anything um whereas by the time they had got into a master's and they might have worked a sort of year or two in between their sort of professional identity was already fairly solid and so it was much much harder to kind of unpick that it's the same with teachers actually 25 26 year old teachers tend to be the hardest nuts to crack in terms of teaching in a different way because it's not that long ago that they were taught a totally different way as being good and then you show up and you're saying, actually, you know what? If you want kids to think for themselves, you're going to have to try this. Try doing things a bit differently. And they they really struggle to believe. It's actually a believability gap. They, they struggle to believe that that could be true. And they're not yet at the kind of level of self-confidence that they can kind of let go again. No, that's it. 
So it's interesting. So on the one hand, you're saying, you know, learning how to, how to learn is kind of really important. The space then sort of follows that. On the other hand, space also can really detract from it, as you were talking about, when you take people out of their regular space, or we were talking about hotels and, and stuff like that, yeah, yeah, and how that can kind of be a quite a negative or really hinder learning experiences. I think there's there's two things that happen with taking people out of their space or their normal space. One is the psychological and physiological response of how they act in a certain space. As we all know, you know, you walk into a, a cathedral and you act differently to when you walk into a boardroom or if you walk somewhere with people dressed kind of or incredibly smartly, you know, you react, you respond in a certain way. And you know, if you, even when you, oh, you all know this, um, when you go back to your old school <laughs> or you meet your old teacher you start to kind of feel like you're a school kid again, right? And all yeah. the kind of those feelings. The smell. So it's definitely the smell, yeah, the smell of a school. <laughs> but there's definitely a thing. I mean, and this is this is part of the kind of science of, around addiction, actually, too. But you know, your body responds, and there, you know, therefore you you respond. As soon as you're in your kind of usual environment, you respond in a certain way. That, and there's a, one of the things about play is what Heidegger called the the magic circle, which is this idea that in this circle, different rules apply. You know, so it's a football pitch or it's a, on a tennis court or a boxing ring. You know, you, you can punch someone in the face in the boxing ring. You, you don't do it outside. Um, so in sports in particular, but obviously in other games and stuff, like you can't use your hands um, when you're playing football, soccer for the Americans, but you can outside and so forth. And so I think one of the things that happens when you take people out of the normal context is you're also saying in this realm, different rules apply from the rules that you're you're normally in. So that's one thing, I think. And the second part is is time. You know, I think one of the, the biggest problems have when they're in a work environment, their regular work environment, they still feel sort of umbilically connected to it. And obviously with devices these days, it's, it's very hard to kind of fully break. But to give people time, because playfulness also requires time. And again, play has defined times. You know, you say, well, we've got an hour to play this game here. or um, and, and those kind of boundaries are quite often really sort of unknown. But I think that's a lot of what's going on. There's a great little piece of research that popped up in September and it was from uh, the Harvard Education Review, I want to say. I'm going to look it up and confirm. But it was talking about the comparison between people who learned through lectures and then people who learned in a more active, playful learning style. And they asked them questions around their perception of how well they had been learning and the quality of the lecturer after having had a couple of months just learning through lectures and just having active learning. Now, what was interesting is the people who had just been in lectures, when they had the perception of the final lectures they were having, they said, you know, a very high quality lecturer. I felt I learned a lot. I felt that it was a quality learning experience. And the people who had had active learning for the, the couple of months prior and then had this lecture, this final lecture, uh, felt a bit dumb felt that they had learned quite a lot, maybe more than they had learned in their active learning experience, that they wished they had had more lectures because they felt very well <laughs> informed. And then they did a test on this the knowledge that both groups had been taught over this time in very different ways. And the active learning group, who were under the impression they hadn't learned as well and that they'd maybe been a little less productive, way outperformed the group who had had lectures. But the the group who had had lectures, of course, perceived themselves as having had a more quality learning experience, much more enjoyable, but they performed less well. That's the challenge that we wrestle with every day. Our work is, and the work of any designer, 
uh, worth their salt, I think, is messy. And it feels slightly on the edge of chaos. It feels like it's, um, you know, what value is this really offering? It's quite expensive for the client. Are they getting what they want out of it? And at the end, of course, you've got to have the confidence that the way we're going about this will lead to a better result in the end. But there's always this dip in the project where people feel that, oh, you know, maybe maybe we should just do it the way the old way we've always done it. Mm. And so a lot of my time is spent, I think, wrestling people out of that ditch and getting them to the point where they, they see the impact of the work that they've been doing and the work that we've been coaxing them through. Yeah, I mean, I, I've found over and over again that the, you know, in the the projects that we do and in, in the commercial projects we do quite apart from the kind of learning and teaching stuff is that the the hard part is always the people bit and it's not really the actual design part and there's not many design problems where you really get stuck going oh, i really just don't know what to do here mm. there's a lot of kind of wrangling around the kind of fear and around um and that exact thing of why don't we just go back to the way we've done it before even though you've been brought on to work differently right? and that's the whole point of your presence there there's actually a, a really serious question, particularly around service design or designing non-stuff. <laughs> Do you think we could trademark my, my, that? Non-stuff yeah, design. Yeah, non-stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, you could start another company called No, no Stuff. No Stuff, exactly. Uh, but when you're designing non-stuff, non-things, it can feel, it can even feel to you sometimes are we backing up the wrong tree? Is this is this a real thing? Is this what do you tell your mother you do for a job? Does it really matter? And I work in computers. That's yeah, what I tell my mother. Exactly. I'm a spy. Um <laughs> with one of the projects that we'd undertaken, it was down in Southwest Australia, and it, we had this problem that we were actually convinced that there wasn't progress being made. They wanted to build a really expensive new physical environment, but the teaching and learning felt quite far from the type of environment they thought they wanted. So when we were working with some of the teachers and talking to them about what they might do, I noticed a few things that that looked like they were small but big impact, small changes but big impact. One of them changing the lighting. And the math classroom went from 20 lux. I kid you not. It's like working in... Oh, that's like a cave. In a cave, yeah. So we, we said to them, look, change the light bulbs to get some white light, open the blinds, get rid of the blinds, actually, remove the blinds from the classroom and empty out the furniture. They had an assumption that every child needs a desk and chair, which is in maths often true, but not always true. But there was actually furniture beyond what even they needed. So we said, chuck out what you don't need. And they got rid of high level blinds. They changed the wall colours, lick of paint, just to be a more reflective light rather than that yellow paint that institutions tend to be painted in. Removed cupboards, that they that were just full of stuff that they hadn't used in a year. I think if you've not used a resource in a year and a half, you should probably get rid of it. So getting rid of the cupboards opened up more floor area. They got different type of desks with little wheels on that allowed them to move the desk quicker to the formation that would work well for the students. That took three weeks to do. The results are students happier in math lesson. They're more engaged. They're more vocal. So it's actually a loud classroom which is sometimes frowned upon when you say a very loud classroom, but it's brilliant. It's that buzz of students engaged in what they're doing. Students move around so much more. They've got uh, whiteboards all around the classroom. So students are actually doing their thinking on the wall. So errors can be picked out more quickly. They're stood up, which if you're a a teenage boy is actually quite important because being stuck behind a desk is just the last place you want to be. Students who maybe felt they were at the back of the room 
realize that they actually do have good voices and have good things to say. And the teacher is no longer at the front because there's no real front. There's three focal points in the classroom. So no one can hide, if you like. And right, so it's much more of a side-by-side thing rather than much a more front that way. one. Yeah. And that's an example of how you had uh, John, this Liverpudlian math teacher who finds himself in rural southwest Australia, keen to make a change but not sure how, thinks the space is never going to allow him to teach in the way he wanted to teach anyway. So he went for the path of least resistance, which is don't do anything differently, just plug on. With some minor changes that were costless almost to make, or very, you know, three figures, not four, it's transformed his classroom into the kind of place that he's always wanted. As he says, you know, he's, it's a nice place to be. And I'm having fun in the job. Which will have a massive effect on the students, right, too, and his teaching. Well, as he, he says he feels like he's doing maths in the open air now rather than cooped up in a cave. And I think that tells you everything. If you want open minds, that's a good starting yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, there's a whole sort of that expression of sort of a cluttered space, cluttered mind, and all of that. So it, I was about to make the quip that you're the kind of Marie Kondo's of educational spaces, but cause it, it was kind of a bit like that. Of the, you know, A makeover will make a big difference. But there's a kind of nice metaphor here that kind of brings me on to the thing I was going to say before, which is, kind of what you're doing in the physical space is unlearning in the physical space. So, you know, there's been quite a lot of talk about the importance of, of unlearning and we tend to think of learning always as a kind of additive thing. Oh, I need to learn new ways to do this, need to learn, you know, new, new methods and so on and so forth. But unlearning, letting go of some of those old structures, you know, in your case that you were just talking about, it's, it's physically, but with that then comes unlearning the kind of habits of, you know, everyone's sitting behind desks and so forth. And in, in the corporate environment, there's an awful lot of unlearning uh, that has to happen, partly to make space, I think, just sort of mental space. But partly, if you don't unlearn, it will just block the, the new stuff you're trying to learn. And you'll fall back into those habits that we talked about before of, oh, you know, why don't we just do it the way we've, we've done it before? Whereas what you sort of really want is, I've forgotten the way we did it before, so we have to go with the new way. Yeah. The challenge of the just the, the verb, you know, to unlearn something and this idea of unlearning being a thing makes it feel like an event. And I think in corporate world, people still think learning is an event. You, you go along to a training day and you learn or you go along to the HR people and you learn something. For most people, that's what learning means. They associate it with some of these old tools of learning, uh, going to a training center and unlearning it doesn't really improve on that it makes it feel like you have to go and have the chip changed a bit like a many um, black thing with yeah or yeah maybe, or maybe more like a black mirror uh, yeah. style you know go and get your chip changed and then you'll then you'll have unlearned it all and you'll be able to start afresh i don't believe in starting fresh i think that it's it goes back to your your point on teaching it leaves grooves all these experiences leave grooves. And to be under the impression you can unlearn the things, these grooves that have made you who you are is, is unrealistic. But what you can do is say, wow, they, that was really awful. And here's why it was awful. But to know the answer to why something wasn't working means you had to think about it. And I think the biggest barrier I see at all levels in organisations, including at the very top, is a lack of thinking and a lack of taking time just to think. People are so busy doing and making things that we don't sometimes step back just to think you need to slow down to be able to do that. You need to have the tools to reflect 
And sometimes, you know what, you need someone stood by you making you do it. And I think that's why there will always be a role for people doing the kind of work that we do as designers, because we design thinking. And that's the whole point. We help people design their thinking where they've maybe not taken the time to do it before. As opposed to design thinking. (laughs) <laughs> which is exactly the designing well, thinking des- yeah. designing thinking is what design thinking should have been all along but it got taken over by people who made stuff when you deal in non-stuff the only thing you can do is designing your thinking so you wrote this book and I'm, I'm kind of interested how to come up with great ideas and actually make them happen that sounds like a kind of um an itch that needed scratching because those two together to your point about kind of thinking and, and doing as well that you know, how to come up with great ideas. There's probably kind of hundreds of books on those. How to kind of make stuff happen. There's probably hundreds of books of those, but the connection between the two is quite important. Do you want to just tell us kind of how that came about and, and what it's about? You're right that it came from a frustration. It was the whole reason for starting No Tosh as well. Tosh is the Scots word for nonsense. And so the name came from around the kitchen table when my wife summed up uh, what I was trying to do, which was cut through all the nonsense I saw about people creating policies. You've got to remember this was the time of the financial, the first financial crisis. We, by the time this comes out, we may have another one. Um, but the amount of nonsense that was talked, people predicting endlessly what was going to happen next, it was a lot of nonsense. And I wanted to cut through it. And I thought the only way you cut through it is by helping people think for themselves, not listen to the pundits. In fact, we are seeing the same through the media today. Lots of people guessing every other minute what's going to happen next, getting it wrong, and then having another think and another programme. But what I would hope is that there's this beautiful spot between coming up with an idea and actually taking the first step to make it happen. It's the glue between those two moments that's the magic point. And so in the book, there's a mixture of stories of people who've been there and done it successfully with an idea of how they might have gone about doing it. And there's a whole bunch of tools that I have found faithful companions over the years to make those connections. The tools make it sound like it's a mechanical process and it's, it's really not. It's a little bit more felt sometimes. And the other thing is it's about practice. Uh, coming up with great ideas needs lots of practice. Making ideas happen, you need to have lots of skills. And sometimes you don't have the skills, but you can generally buy them in if you're convinced your idea is good enough. So really the important bit is the glue between the two where you join up And you say, here's the idea and here's how I'm going to convince a couple of other people to join me in making it happen. Because I don't believe you can make great things happen alone. And that's why I'm not a freelancer. That's why I went through, still going through the pain of creating an organization. Because the big stuff needs bodies to make it happen. It needs different perspectives and challenger perspectives. And it needs tools to make it happen. So... We're coming up to time. Um, I ask all my guests what one small thing has a kind of outsized influence on the world that is either really well designed or is uh, needs to be redesigned. Perhaps it's something that's sort of often overlooked. I'm going to pick, I only decided this based on what you just said. We're coming up against time, which is a lie. It's not <laughs> true. We have time. And what's the worst that could happen if we took a little more time? Time is actually the number one post-it that I will see on a wall in any project. And sometimes it's not enough time, uh, the wrong kind of time. Outlook, for some God unknown reason, has defined that everything we do must take an hour. And we're currently, it's taken (laughs) us 58 minutes to get this far. And that's why you think we're up against time. This is not true. So when, when we are 
thinking about projects, one of the first things we do is we don't have meetings about it. And if we're going to talk about something, we generally put half an hour in the diary because most things in life can be achieved in half an hour. And if you need more time, take it. I think that time is the element that stops people being able to think differently as well. If I tell you that we're up against time, we have to stop thinking, then you will stop thinking. But if I say to you, I want you to think differently about this and come back to me when you've got a different way of going about doing it, then I can give you a loose deadline and say, I'll see you in a couple of weeks and I'll look forward to hearing it. But you've got to take time to do things. And so I think um, for me, the element that we mustn't overlook is our own time and how we choose to use it. Set aside desk time every week in your diary so that everyone in your organisation can see it. Uninterruptible, precious time where you can do what you like at your desk. You can pick up that book that you've sat staring at all week but not had a chance to read. You can pick up the, the podcast tool and do a radio show with a very old connection and think differently about something without even realising you would have done that. You can play lemmings on your phone and get lost in it for half an hour and see if a good idea comes to you at the end of it. But that precious, uninterrupted time is probably one of the best first steps that people can take to think differently and then start changing the way they choose to work. Yeah, that's very good advice. One of my favourite books is Make Time, actually, as well, by... um Jake Knapp. And- well, we can't make time. That's that, that's uh, <laughs> physically impossible. Well, their point is that we leak time a lot, that we, um, we'll watch TV for four hours a day or we'll, you know, dick around on our phones and stuff. And- but you know what? There's nothing like watching TV for four <laughs> hours. Says the, says the ex-Channel 4 guy. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm a TV addict. I love TV. Nothing beats it. Nothing beats getting lost in a book. But you can't do either of those if you think you've got stuff you've got to get on with doing, which means you've got to have precious time that's just for doing whatever you like. And I'm a firm believer in that. My Jewish colleague, Jeremy, has Shabbat, and I want to have a, a kind of non-Jewish Shabbat, and I've taken it. So Friday afternoons, if generally, or some other point in the week, I will try to take a, a kind of mini Shabbat where I can just be and do what I feel I have to do, guilt-free, yeah, I think that's really, really important. It's uh, uh, incredibly important. Well, let's hope that people listening to this, we say, just take the next hour to do something for yourself and just be, or not do something at all, just go and sit somewhere. So you, we can find you on uh, Twitter. You're you and Macintosh, your MC Intosh. We were just talking before yep, about that. Right. You are at notosh.com, so N-O-T-O-S-H.com. And where else can people find you online? On Instagram, we have Team Notosh and my personal account, which has workshops, food, views of home and family, <laughs> is uh, you and Notosh and uh, all the usual places, LinkedIn. And on Medium, uh, we have a Notosh magazine where we post some of our thinking about and, and also some really good stuff that you can steal to work with on your team. So, yeah, uh, medium.com forward slash Notosh. Great. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Ewan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to be my guest on Power of Ten. Thank you so much for the invitation on. It's been great fun. You can find the transcript of Power of Ten on thisishcd.com, where you'll also find the other podcasts on the network. My name's Andy Palane. You'll find me online as apalane on Twitter and and most other places, and also palane.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm